Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 25, a show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I'm Jeff Hallish. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How are you doing again, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing excellent because spring is coming. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm getting a touch of it already. Uh, it's, you know, I'm down here in Atlanta and it's kind of been warm this week, so it's been really nice. Yeah, it, it has been nice. Well, now what do you mean by warm? What's your temperature there? Um, it's been about 70 this week, but I came back from, I was at bike week in Orlando or in uh, Daytona last week. And last week it was uh, all in the 70s and 80s in Daytona. So I've been there for about, you know, a couple of weeks and it's been kind of nice. And then at least coming back here, we didn't have snow. We didn't have that horrible weather that was here for the whole month of February. Yes, very true. Yeah, I think the last of our snow, I'm a little farther north, but the last of our snow has just left. So <laughs> I think we're we're pretty good there. But uh, I'm excited to see the grass and, and hopefully it'll start greening up. And it's still, you know, it's still in the 40s or whatever. It's gotten up to the 60s and, you know, mid 60s. But uh, I just know that, hey, if the snow's gone and the sun's shining, that just makes me happy. <laughs> I uh, I just want it to be good enough to ride. <laughs> there you go. Yes, I I do remember those days. Yes, <laughs> I don't right. I don't I don't have the time for all that, but uh, no, <laughs> I just don't make the time for it anymore. I I one of my pastimes. I really loved riding, but uh, yep. Anyways, so uh, I l- let's talk about. We've got a lot of since our last show. We've gotten a lot of emails and some different things that we talked about in those shows, and then there were some questions that people want to answer, and then we had this this issue with you know can the NSA spy on our hard drives. And uh, we kind of want to talk about a couple of those things and we'll go from there. But I think if it's okay with you, we'll go ahead and get started with, uh, with some emails and, and see what we got going on there. Okay. All right. So email number one says, Jeff, I've been a follower of the show for some time. And after hearing the show on recovery Mac partitions last week, well, it was a little while ago, and a recent mishap has caused me to reach out for help. I have a 2.5 inch, 750 gigabyte Western digital black new in the last six months mounted in a Zalman ZM-VE300, which is a fantastic external enclosure that is capable of acting as a virtual optical drive via referencing stored, uh, storing ISOs in a particular folder. Okay. The drive was originally formatted in XFAT since I worked between Windows, Linux, and Macs. And anyway, he said, I have a mounted Windows XP ISO install at work. Ah, ouch. And without realizing it during the install process, I accidentally wiped my drive or formatted and copied over the Windows install files to my 750 gig drive. <laughs> and how many of us have not done this at one point or another? Um, I realized this and had stopped the process of installing Windows. So it currently only has the file copies over via Windows install media. What happens until the first reboot? I accidentally deleted the drive prior and had used test disk to restore the partition table and the XFAT partition. But it appears since it was reformatted in NTFS and the Windows installation files were copied over that this is no longer an option with that tool. I understood that the original content that was overwritten is probably gone and the file table data that has been overwritten may be done as well. So what would Scott advise and is there any relatively low cost or free software that may be of help at recovering my XFAT partition? Steven Dizalia. Thank you, Stephen, for the email. And Scott, what do you say to all that? Well, it, you know, it obviously sounds a little bit like a complicated situation with them doing a number of things here. Uh, XFAT 
obviously, the, you know, part of the problem with XFAT is, and, and where he said, oh, yeah, and Linux, uh, because XFAT is primarily supported in uh, Windows and in Macs as commercial editions. The, vis- the version that's written for Linux is a freeware slash whatever that another guy in another country wrote because – uh, unless he bought the one that's from uh, Tuxera, because Tuxera actually has one that's a commercial one. I'm sure he didn't. Um, there's other kinds of issues where you might not have full support. Even plugging it into Linux, you may actually have some things that are different from one system to the other. Uh, just because uh, the free Linux version, and I'm just mentioning that just to be careful with it, that you want to be very cautious about certain applications, certain tools actually have the ability to make customized updates to XFAT, and they may not be complicit in all of the versions, especially if they're not the commercially supported versions. M- Microsoft did a, a lot of complex things there to make sure that it was going to be very difficult in the Linux world. Gotcha. Um, okay. But XFAT in and of itself, that's kind of the difficult situation is that Again, in the recovery scenario, there are tools that support it, like RStudio, where you can actually do an XFAT recovery using RStudio, but its layout is completely different than NTFS. So NTFS wants to uh, reserve you know, a, a certain amount of space for the MFT. It changed. It used to be uh, 12.5%, but then version 7, version 8 had some minor changes to how they reserved the space for MFT entries and then slammed that down at the beginning of the disk. Well, XFAT was uh, centered around the idea that it was not a bootable file system, and so XFAT has this gap uh, between the boot sector and then what you would actually have for your partition structure so that there could be a GPT structure that would also be stored there as well. So there are some things that are unique about it with that, but it would also cause all the data to shift, and you don't have the exact same tables for how the data is laid out. So you're going to be overriding some of that content with NTFS because the other EX, uh, XFAT is not a bootable file system, so it doesn't have some of the same layout and the same things you would expect. So okay. that's that's a that's a real fundamental problem. I think you know first he's got to have a tool that's going to at least understand XFAT in order to do the recovery. So something like R Studios, which is not free, but you can get a seventy nine dollar version, uh, and then run that against the drive. But part of the problem might be is that some of those tables are overwritten. You've got contents overwritten. Now you're actually looking at the only thing you can do is carving. And carving is going to be looking for you know, a header and then a footer and then carving out the middle so you're not going to get file name and structure in some cases. There will be some things that will definitely be destroyed in the process. If he stopped it early enough, then maybe he can still recover some of those things as you know the full layout and the way it was. But it really is all dependent upon how much got overwritten in that process because they are too – if it had been NTFS overwriting another NTFS, then you would have only lost a small number of files that were file system files or bootable files or the layout for that disk. But being that this was a completely different file system in this case, it's it's not even as good as it would be if you had HFS and you overwrote it with NTFS because HFS is further down in the disk. You may actually preserve some of that data, but if you overwrite any of the HFS structure – you've lost the entire chain because HFS is a hierarchical file system. It's all linked together. It looks like a giant org chart. Um, So as you cross over file systems like this, this is where those problems come in is you're overriding pertinent data that is necessary for the file system to be able to recover that. And 
again, XFAT looking at it from a standpoint of it's possible that it could be a GPT structure, you don't have the exact same MBR and GPT structure layout that you have in Windows. So he's mostly SOL is really kind of the bad thing. <laughs> right. uh, if he uses a tool, like I said, like RStudio that might be able to do carving and try to find some file system data and try to rebuild it, maybe he'll get lucky enough that he can recover some of it. But a chunk of it's going to be gone. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Now, so if you're switching between a, a bunch of different operating systems, what I mean, what type of file system do you generally use? Well, so you know, FAT32. Even though there's so FAT32 is still fundamentally the one thing that mostly was well known and was able to be built around the structure. So, whereas Linux, this is the other problem with Linux is because Microsoft wants to sue everybody who's using FAT32 or wanted everybody to pay a patent fee uh, because they created FAT32. And of course, it being one of the older file systems being around since uh, Windows 95, one of the issues has been that other other people already started using it, embedding it in Linux and doing stuff in the early 2000s. So uh, there was this huge case with TomTom where Microsoft went after them and sued them for using FAT32 embedded in their Linux uh, system for uh, GPSs. And they just kind of threw in the towel, and I guess they either paid a fee or did something. And there's this whole other solution where Microsoft says, you know, pay us $300,000 and we will license you, you know, all of these file systems. So Linux is kind of the one that's really the problem in all of these scenarios if you want to switch between three different file systems. Well, or between three different operating systems, right. then your file, your file system, uh, I still think if you're going to do that, you should probably be looking at FAT16 or FAT32. You have a file limit size, which is going to be in FAT16. It's going to be two gigs per file. It's going to be four gigs in uh, FAT32. But, you know, at least you don't have such a compatibility problem that it's going to corrupt your file system. Even NTFS, it's not fully implemented, not only in uh, Linux, but it's also not implemented 100% in Mac OS either. Even though they pay the licensing fee, they can read a disk, they can do a few things, but it's not, all the security tables aren't implemented. A lot of the other stuff that Windows requires for those things to be rewritable and to be usable don't exist in those other operating systems. So at least if you're choosing something like FAT32 or FAT16, it's been around a long enough time that some of the bugs might have been worked out from uh, some of the other uh, file system drivers that exist in Linux. You might have the best chance of it living. The files, the file system driver that was written is a Fuse driver for XFAT. Um, and there's probably several of them out there, but there's one primary one that a guy in another country said, you know, screw Microsoft. I don't live in your country. I don't have to live with your patent rules. And so he released a driver, and that's what a lot of people have been using. But again, not fully implemented. Uh, you know, that's one of the weird things about XFAT is it meant, it's meant to be changeable. And so certain features can be activated or modified for your device. So it can store GPS coordinates, it can store UTC time, it can store a lot of other stuff. Uh, there's a guy in Australia named Zoran Ilya who wrote a paper, a white paper on XFAT and all the things that it can do, but it was primarily uh, its first primary use kind of besides Windows CE, which was what it was written for in 2006, was for cameras. And there's all kinds of problems using them in cameras because the people who are coding the content for cameras it's, it's got a level of complexity that they haven't been dealing with for 10 years. 
So I think they just slammed out just enough to get it to work. And so there's all kinds of problems with data getting corrupted, switching between PCs and and cameras. There's all kinds of recommendations about not using the camera to delete your files because it would cause corruption in the file system because it can't manage its its blocks. It can't manage uh, a number of things. It's just you know meant to be turned off. But uh, XFAT has a lot of proponents because of the fact that if you're going to move between different file systems, you want to my hat. You might want or different operating systems. You might want your file system to be able to handle larger files than four gigs. Right. And that's that's okay. really your real problem. You don't want to use NTFS, so your only other choice is going to be FAT32, which limits it to four gigs or XFAT. And I just don't think we're mature enough with XFAT drivers in Linux to feel like. Uh, I mean, we haven't even, we're not even mature enough with NTFS drivers in Linux to feel like it's not going to get corrupt or something bad isn't going to happen. Okay. Well, that's, that's a good point. Well, <laughs> Stephen, I hope that answers a lot of your questions with the different issues you've had here. And, and hopefully that, uh, that can help you out or either, you know, even moving into the future with, uh, how you decide to do that from now on. So, yeah. Um, all right, well, let's move on to the next email. It says, Hi, Scott and Jeff. Just a quick tip for preventing Windows from auto-mounting drives when you attach them to a PC. If you use from an admin command prompt, disk part auto-mount disable, this will prevent Windows from automatically mounting drive file systems. To reverse this, you can use disk part auto-mount enable. The drive will be visible in disk management, assuming it's working, of course, but none of the partitions will be mounted and therefore not have a drive letter automatically assigned. You can assign a drive letter manually if you wish from disk management. Many tools can still see these unmounted partitions and work with them, including Scott's favorite RStudio, and I believe also TeskDisk and PhotoRec. Useful for data rescue from USB flash drives and SD cards, etc. This is, of course, no way in no way a replacement for a SATA USB write blocker, but is useful to prevent a faulty drive from perhaps causing a system... BSOD when mounted or filing system level alterations to the drive when you need to work on it with other tools. In addition, because disk manager will see the drives and partitions, just not mount them. I assume this is not quite the same as modifying the VBR AAH 55H signature, as I assume that the Windows does not even see the partition table as valid. And he's got a, a link for details on this, and that's from Simon Zarafa. So... So Simon, we have communicated for years. Actually, uh, he's he's followed me. We've talked a couple of times, and uh, and so I give him points for uh, we when he did that last month. He also made that post to Facebook or to Twitter, and so he caught me. Uh, he caught me in uh, in not mentioning one of the other items because all of the stuff in all of the operating systems actually has a way to make sure that you don't mount your file systems uh, and that you actually can have them disabled when they're plugged in. And I'm so used to dealing with write blockers and some of the other systems that I've not already had these things enabled that I just arbitrarily always use a write blocker or already do something that will actually stop it from uh, no matter what the situation is. Uh, I mean, so effectively, this is kind of a software version of a write blocker, and I neglected to mention it. And I actually awarded him a, a shirt, an embroidered uh, shirt from My Hard Drive Died, and uh, believe it or not, we're out of stock, so I've got to actually print them. <laughs> I've got to actually, I've got to put in another order to get the right sizes. And uh, he gave me an address, so uh, so he'll be getting his shirt as soon as it it, it comes uh, for catching me on not saying something because I usually just go off on all the possible choices. And uh, and this time, 
he had a valid point and I missed it. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad we got people, you know, kind of double checking us, but you know, we're, we're all busy and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I can't remember everything that I do. <laughs> Uh, well, well I, I've used this, and this is a normal thing, because you have to do this in Macs. So whenever okay. you're dealing with a Mac, uh, a lot of times you, you do have to turn off disk arbitration, and that's what this function is called, is disk arbitration. And so uh, so and so Windows has this ability to do it. And But when you go back and you're dealing with older versions like XP, you may have some other complications involved with that where it's not as robust or as thorough as it might be in Windows 7 uh, or even Vista from that standpoint. And so, so, again, it might just be habit at this point that I'm dealing with things that would um, always guarantee it rather than somebody else's system that might be on or off or somebody played with a command line to – readjust that at some point uh but that if you're in control of your system and you want to do the same thing and you want to make it quick and easy then this is also a solution that would actually stop uh the particular problem we were describing with you know you partially recover a drive or something else happens and we had to change 55aa to 55 something else in order to stop it uh from mounting the system so it's a it's a it's a perfect solution uh as long as you make sure no one else modified your system. Right. Okay. No, good. Yeah, good to know. It's it's nice to have all these, uh, you know, all these tools that you can use for, uh, you know, depending on the, the situation. Very cool. All right. So let's see. We have, and this is from, uh, let me see. Oh, this is from uh, Door to Door Geek, a.k.a. Stephen McLaughlin, the <laughs> owner of the Podnuts Network. And he said, uh, he put in an email, he said, your hard drives were riddled with NSA spyware for years. <laughs> and this was the register. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, but I want to get to one one other email that kind of talks about the same thing. So uh, that was an article he sent me on the NSA spyware in hard drives, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And then so I've got another email here from Courtney, and it says, hi, love the show. It's great hearing you both discuss data recovery and forensics topics. Listening to the show is even better after having done Scott's course in Australia last year. I would love to hear Scott's thoughts on a recent announcement about hard drive firmware hacking. Also, what ideas he has or how the industry might overcome the issue of self-encrypting drives that adopt the FIPS 140-2 standard, which I have no idea what that means. So keep up the good work. And this is from Courtney. Thank you, Courtney, for the email. Uh, so, and thank you for taking my class. I appreciate you attending it. Um, obviously, the self-decrypting drives. The, you know, I'll address you know at least that from that standpoint. There's nothing. There's nothing currently we're easily going to be able to do once they're enabled. So, in these particular ones, what you're talking about is a situation where the uh, TPM people have come up with a, which is the trusted platform management, this trusted management platform uh, encryption process by which your hard drive can actually be encrypted by commands being sent to it or encrypted in line all the time. Uh, we're, we're pretty much stuck. There's really no real options for us at this point to get around this problem. Uh, it's a, it's a standard that was developed for military encryption, military based encryption. And it's going to be extremely difficult to deal with it from a data recovery standpoint, and the only chances we are going to have is if somebody finds a flaw in the system and then that flaw can be exploited on everything that already previously existed before they fixed it. That's our only real option in the future. And that's usually how things happen. You know, at, uh, you know, five years down the road, somebody finds a flaw in the algorithm and rather than cracking or brute forcing something, they're able to exploit this 
flaw and then gain access to whatever was already encrypted. But this one is a built-in hardware encryption platform, and it was meant to be secure. And there are some that can even encrypt specific sectors. So you could actually say this partition belongs to Fred, and we're going to encrypt this for Fred, and Susie can be on this computer, and we will have a different encryption capability for Susie's partition, and each person can actually have an encrypted partition that's enabled. There is software to manage it, uh, but it's done at the hardware level, and the software just tells it you know, who the user is and who's locked in and those kind of things, like Opal drives, things like that. Now, now let me ask you this. Is this something that could be that, you know, some a piece of malware or something could, you know, attack and turn this on and kind of lock you out of your, your stuff? Or is this something you would have to have physical access to the hard drive or the computer? Well, uh, so again, you know, physical access means nothing if the software can communicate with the commands that the provider has. So in other words, if you come out with a Seagate self-encrypted drive and these are the commands, they have to tell the people who are writing the software because there's like 10, 12, 15 vendors that sell the software that manages it from the commercial side. So you can, you know, um, you can you can buy the software that you want to purchase and use that from the management side to say these laptops are going to be encrypted or this one's encrypted for Bob or Susie. So at least from that standpoint, they have to have some sort of developer network. They have to have some developer process and then be able to tell them what these commands are. Once these commands are known, and this is going, you know, this is even going to hit us in that NSA thing. Once these commands are known and they're published and they're available, then you can manipulate the device by passing these commands. And so then you're talking to firmware internally, and it even has its own storage and has its own ability to do things that are beyond the scope of what we would have considered normal for our drives or malware or any of the other stuff that would live in the file system or the operating system. So so we are kind of leaving that scope and moving into a situation where sure things could be things could happen and you have no control over it and then you also have difficult difficulty even being able to tell that it had occurred. Oh it does not sound like a good scenario for anybody working on these things or uh, actually even even using them from that well, standpoint. From the using side, it, that's the real difficult side, right? Because the the people like me who are doing this from uh, from a data recovery perspective, we deal with firmware all the time. It's a normal process. We have spe- special tools to deal with firmware. The PC three thousand being one of the highest end tools that's out there to deal with. Uh, with and, and I know it's a weird name, and I know people probably have heard me say it before, but Ace Laboratories in Russia makes this tool called PC3000, which has the ability to deal with firmware, copy firmware, modify firmware, write it back to the drive. And so they're talking through the same interfaces that we use while we're communicating. So in all of these situations, if you know these commands, you could do these things. There's a there's some complexity that's involved there when you're saying, well, now I have a piece of malware that's going to send a command to the drive. I'm going to write something to the drive. How do I communicate back out from the drive to the data or to the drive itself in order to store stuff access data or send it because you're talking about a piece of hardware that's kind of like the bias of your computer not EFI because EFI is the new uh, standard 
for being able to communicate with your computer through extensible firmware interface. And it has all kinds of features where it can actually communicate with the internet, it can communicate with cell services and things like that. Your BIOS, your basic input output, did not have those abilities and it was very, very basic uh, and just got the hardware started. But it didn't have the ability to say phone home or call out from the BIOS without you know some severe modifications or some other things that actually happen because it's not a, a place where you can write code and you can have a little operating system that's running there. And that's the situation with hard drives is you've got this one thing that's separated from the data. And so what this all these things, even when we're getting to the NSA stuff with the malware, uh, all what they're doing is figuring out ways to apply commands that when you make, something that changes that you can tell that that command has now been applied and we can write code back to your drive or we can you know change sectors or we can modify something on a platter uh but you've got to get your operating system to interact with that data at that point now is all okay so my my basic understanding is very limited but is all firmware rewritable from a standpoint or are some are some pieces of firmware locked down that they that nobody can basically rewrite anything in there well, so different drive manufacturers do some slightly different things. And basically, the general statement that I could make about that is um, there are different levels of content that are in the firmware that uh, are critical to non-critical. And so some things may be the same chunk of th- of data, the same chunk that's used across multiple drives in the system area. But there's always going to be a table or two tables or a handful of them that are unique per a drive. And so you can communicate with the firmware. You can back up the firmware. You can modify the firmware. You can write it back. So it's actually sitting in a a section of the platter that has been separated that is identified normally, what we're communicating it as, the system area. And so in the system area – they have tracks and sectors and we can read and write data to them. So virtually every hard drive that I know, um, I mean, I'm trying to think if there's any specific ones we can't modify firmware on at all. Once it's been reversed, we can communicate with it. The PC3000 has been updated. Pretty much any drive I plug into that system has the ability to talk to firmware, read it, download it, change it, modify it. Now I may have to manually change it on a computer like open a hex editor, go modify something, and then write it back. But of course, if you have written a piece of malware that knows what I did, then you could write that command so that the malware would then, when it's executed, write the same content back to the system area, make a modification, store some data. And they and they do have, uh, you know, now, especially today, a large quantity of blank space that is usable space. Uh, and when I say large, it, it's, it's large by comparison to what the system area and all the code and all the stuff that's very efficient that's been running there for you know a decade, uh, you know, 512 bytes per a sector is not a lot. If you all of a sudden had 20 megs of data, you could make huge things. Wow. That- okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. That sounds. Uh, that doesn't sound very very. Uh- Nice for us, I don't think. Well, again, they were never meant to protect themselves. The biggest protection they ever had, I guess, was complexity. Uh, sure. The drives and all the commands that go with them. Like, So we have standard ATA commands, and those are what you know your normal operating system is going to say, okay, I'm going to make this request. Here's my ATA command. They have drivers, and the drivers communicate these commands. But there's all these other commands that are the extended commands that are used for uh, – 
the management side, the diagnostic side, the, uh, you know, anybody who's writing any code or doing any kind of, uh, um, customization or anything, maybe even for OEMs, so they could say, well, we just want to label this drive Apple instead of, you know, Toshiba. Like they would have a command for that. So they could actually write a piece of code into a table. And these are inside the drive. There is an area in the system area that's normally, depending on, again, vendors, because I'm just going to give you a general statement rather than trying to break it down by vendor who calls it something different. But um, so you usually have uh, UBA blocks, which are either utility block addresses or universal block addresses. And what that means is I can, as a programmer, I could say, I only, I don't know how big your bad block table is, but if I want to modify it, I can call it by name. So I could say modify UBA block 20, and that's where your bad block table is. I'm going to write some content in there, and I know you have you know 2% of your drive available to me. I'm going to use that 2% and store some malware on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exciting times. Well, <laughs> hey, let's take a quick break for our uh, sponsor and then we'll we'll get into the NSA hard drive. Um, well, well, we'll get your thoughts on that. So anyways, our show today is brought to you by Reclaim Me Pro. Reclaim Me Pro is a specially tailored data recovery toolkit for data recovery technicians, both beginners and experts. It recovers data from multiple file systems coming from Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. You can find your lost partitions. It can save and load the saved state. It recovers data from various RAIDs from RAID 0 to RAID 6. It's also equipped with a highly configurable disk imager. It does sector-by-sector, sector, VHD, and VHDX. It reads most partitioning schemes from Microsoft LDM to Linux LVM. And it also has powerful RAID recovery and RAID analysis tools for complex RAID recovery. They uh, give very good comprehensive technical support and data recovery training. Reclaiming training is your key to understanding partitions, file systems, and RAID recovery. And uh, I, I've been using this software for a little while, and it, it to me, it's the all-in-one tool for data recovery from you know basic data recovery to uh, RAID recovery, and it's it's you know fairly intuitive to use. So what I want you guys to do is I want you to try it out for free for 14 days over at reclaimme-pro.com, and that's R-E-C-L-A-I-M-E-P-R-O.com. And when you guys decide to purchase the software, use the offer code PODNUTS for a 50% discount. All right, so... Uh, and I just want to say something about Reclaim Me since you did stick that in there, and I know that they are uh, they are an advertiser. And so at least from that standpoint, uh, I just want to make sure that it's clear. I... Um, I do not get a kickback or get anything from Reclaim Me for the advertising portion of this. I have a non-biased – I try to do everything as a representative of a non-biased community from that standpoint so that I'm not skewed or doing anything. But I will tell you uh, in full disclosure from that standpoint, I did recently sign up to be a reseller for them. Uh, and But I am a reseller for a huge amount of things out there. I use a huge amount of products. Uh, and so our studios, not my only product, even though I bring it up often, uh, which again, no kickbacks, no nothing from them either, or, or any of those vendors. Um, but I'll use any tool that solves a problem. I don't really care. Uh, most of the time I'm trying to be cost conscious and at least try to give people a solution that will be cost effective. But I just want to make sure everybody understands whatever solves a problem, uh, is the answer and I am a fan of Reclaim Me. I've used and I have demonstrated in classes before uh, for years before I ever even talked to any of these people or did anything about being a reseller. They have a free version 
that will tell you to lay layout a RAID array. So they have a free version. Uh, it's called something like you know freeraidrecovery.com or something like that. Right. Yep. And I've demoed it before and used it in classes. Like I do a manual portion where I explain to people how to rebuild a RAID, what happens when tools don't work, and what ha you know as a whole. But they have they're one of the only products I ever ran into over all the years that I've done this because some tools came out and they said, okay, fine, we'll figure out what your RAID array is and then you must pay us in order to get the answer. Like we'll say, we solved it, we can recover your data and if you click this button by now, you could go and get something. And so I've always been kind of offended that that's how tools did things because they didn't even give you an indication that you knew that they had completed anything. Uh, this tool, the free re Reclaim Me version, um, it gave you the answer, and not only did it give you the answer, it would show you different tabs, and it would say, which software do you use, and this is how you do it, step by step, one, two, three. And so in the Reclaim Me buttons, you actually could say, well, I own RStudio. It'll tell you which buttons to click and how to add it and what the order was, all for free. Nothing – you could still go use whatever product that you wanted to do, and I was extremely impressed by that. Um and then they had a product where you could pay $200 and it would pass the data from their free program to their paid program so that you could go and do the recovery using their tool. And for a little while, I was not impressed with their tool itself because there was so many other tools I thought did a better job of building a tree and doing stuff. But eventually, one of the things that they had built into their product was the ability to do uh, LVMs and things like that that are difficult to do outside of it manually in other tools. And so I had started using their product to do certain more complex recoveries after I figured out a layout. And I still do a lot of mine manually, but when this works, it saves you a tremendous amount of time. And so there was some complexity there where I might have to use a $500 product that I had before, like a UFS Explorer, where this product was $200 and solves the problem. And so it became one of the topics that we actually used in class to discuss uh, how how we could do things, what's quick and easy. And then we also do the calculator method, which is, you know, you're going to have to sit down and figure everything out and plug it all in and then make it work. So I just wanted to say that disclaimer now, I won't do this every show. I'm just going to say that now that that's, uh, I, I do like their product and this new pro version is actually very expensive. Uh, I think it's $800 or something. So the 50% off is actually going to be a pretty significant savings for you. Right. Uh, doing that. But the, uh, but, I haven't had a lot of time with the new version yet. I've only recently gotten it. Uh, but so far, I've been impressed by at least what I've been able to do with it. There's still some things. I've made some suggestions to them because they contacted me. And I made uh, several suggestions for things that are missing in other people's software. And so that's usually what I do most of the time. I look at everybody's software and I try to help everybody. So, you know, I'm not just dealing with, you know, DeepSpar and, uh, you know, I'm dealing with Atola. I'll share information one way or another that I think each product needs to improve the world because I just want it to be a better world. No, that's very good. I appreciate that. And uh, I'm sure they do too. I, I will tell you a, a real quick story is that I was, when I first got the product and was just kind of testing it out and seeing how it worked. So, you know, obviously I want to, I want to talk about things that I believe in and that, uh, you know, that kind of work for what I need. And I had a drive, which I'd already done a, a, a manual backup. I, I, you know, gotten the data off there. It, the hard drive was, was showing some errors and different things, but it hadn't, hadn't died yet. Well, once I got that done, I actually had the drive and I was just doing some testing with it. And one of the partitions, the, actually the main OS partition with all the data on it 
basically Windows wouldn't see it anymore. <laughs> so I basically put Reclaim Me Pro on the machine and plugged in the drive and it started chunking away at it. And all of a sudden, uh, all this data started showing up. JPEGs and, you know, DocXs and, and all this stuff. And I'm just watching this stuff come, you know, I'm like going, oh, it's right there. Oh, it can. And I really, I trust me when I say this, I know next to nothing about deep hard drive recovery. I know the basics. And so when this piece of software was actually doing all that stuff for me, I was like, well, it works for me. So I'm sure it's going to work for some other people out there. But I, I like your stance on that, Scott, that you use whatever tool, and this is what I believe too, you use whatever tool is going to work for whatever situation. Yeah. So, I mean, one tool in my mind isn't going to solve all the problems. And, and I know they're trying to bundle this and trying to come up with it as a solution for, you know, a hundred things. And, and maybe, it, uh, you know, it'll get there and it'll do that. And, you know, I have like, you know, 10 or 11 raid items that are very complex to deal with. I have to always deal with manually and do. And those are most of the suggestions that I've made to them to make changes because I was impressed, uh, especially, you know, for free, what they were giving away previously. And I would like to see these more complex situations like, uh, you know, compact HP, uh, IBM, JFS, you know, other raid items in this list. Uh, just to be able to handle those kind of things easier than I currently have to do. And if they can add them and they can make those things work, you know, at least from that standpoint, I don't know if it'd be for everything that I do, but you know, I do want to give them points where they deserve it. And, and they have really grown the product quite a lot, but, uh, I'm really looking at it from a standpoint of, you know, my class has been around for five, six years now. And, you know, I go through stages where I'm looking for new things to do, new things to add to the class. And it might be one of those things where I'm looking to build in a new product. And for the, that's why I signed up to be a reseller is that when I sell the class or I do a distance learning kit, I bundle things with the class. And so there's some pieces of software that go with it. Uh, and this might be one of those solutions that solves a huge problem that has changed in the last six or seven years. And it might be a, a good scenario to add to the class. Very cool. All right. So uh, let's, let's go ahead and we're now we're going to talk about the NSA and here's the headline from Huffington post. It says NSA has ability to hide spying software deep within hard drives. Cyber researchers say, and Scott, what do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, I, first, I'm going to say I have I have only read just enough of the articles to know, especially looking at Kaspersky's and that kind of stuff that's out there, to know that portion of what's plausible. And then I try not to taint myself with all the media stuff because I I I work on forensics cases every day and I work on court cases all the time, and I see stuff all the time where the media says one thing and then I go pull the legal document for something and it's completely different from what they actually said that they you know six friends told the story and by the time I got to the sixth friend the story is completely different so and I believe this is one of those situations I know that there is this one thing where they found something and then they tied it back and they said that this is the group that worked with the NSA to do certain things and we think that this code comes from this group and now all of a sudden the headline is NSA can get into your drive and right. you know that might be taking you know six or seven leaps further than what <laughs> you might really believe it is now you know again we have you know the Edward Snowden situation here where everybody you know there was a lot of things that he had said that people found out were true later on. One of the things he's also said in this process is that, you know, encryption fundamentally, and, and I'm not quoting him, so I don't remember everything, but I remember that there was this whole thing is, you know, you know, encryption isn't really going to save you and that you're not really 
doing anything here. Like he kind of made that pretty clear that encryption isn't what you think it is. And then we had, you know, SSL heartbleed and all those other things that have happened uh, where it's actually shown us that our encryption's pretty piss poor. I mean, they even have, you know, TrueCrypt getting out of the game for some other different reasons. And so I don't know that this is the NSA's fault. I don't know that this is anything that they did. I don't know that it's, you know, somebody in Russia or China or somebody, you know, who hacked the system. I do know there's a lot of money in stealing data and stealing, not only stealing their data, I've got, I've got a case that came up last week where it was very simple. Somebody got a guy's Gmail password, went in, obviously read all of his Gmail. And, and again, somebody in another country, nothing to do with anybody he knows and not the normal scenario that you actually have. And then read his email, found his financial advisor, sent an email to his financial advisor that says transfer $15,000 into this bank account with this routing number. I'm in a conference. I can't answer your phone call. And so, again, nobody that's related to anybody that was part of the scenario. And so I'm looking at these kind of things, and you know, that's one of the first things that comes, up, comes to mind is, well – you know, if nothing else, getting some key logging information from something might be extremely valuable. So if you're going to embed data, if you're going to have this process, and so we'll, I'll get to the firmware thing here. The whole point ends up being malware can get distributed. We already know that. Right. We have botnets. We have stuff that we didn't even know existed that was attached. We even get products that we're buying that already have it installed, like Lenovo has had this problem recently. Right. There's, a, there's several instances where whatever happens, it can get onto your computer. Once it's on your computer, it's a command to talk to the drive. If you know the commands and you have a way of you know writing in a very compressed version of, you know, in assembly or something or C that can actually say – I'm going to test for these 10 drives, which are the most popular drives. Now, certain things are also done by families. So families, it doesn't have to be a specific drive. It can be a family of drives. And so once you've passed certain things, like everything prior to 2008 for Seagate was one thing. Everything after 2008 was a different code base. So once you've actually written some code and you've figured out, I can talk to this family. These The commands are the same for all of these people. They have some blank space. I can write some data. And then later on, I can exploit it by saying every time they execute calculator.exe, we'll detect calculator.exe because it's passing through uh, firmware in this command. We'll overtake those sectors. And next time calculator.exe is executed, it's now your malware that's being executed instead of calculator.exe. Oh, uh, okay. So, so it does have to do something in order to write. Because here's the other problem, right? You're, you're writing a piece of malware. You might be able to attack the drive, but now what's your payload? So your payload has to be something that you can then say, well, now I'm looking at your data on the drive. How do I interact with it? Because we have... You know, th there's a separation there. It's not like the internet or these all these other things can communicate. So what would happen is you'd have to monitor for something to take place, and then you would, you could because the drive can write data to sectors. As far as it's concerned, it's just a sector. It can write data there. Uh, if it makes an executable, replaces an executable. If it's smaller than say calculator.exe or appends calculator.exe in some other way, and it still executes, then once that happens, it's on your system. It's you know it's physically done its job, uh, and at that point in time, you can make it do whatever else you want it to do. Once you actually have a piece of code that is now on the computer executing, it can now call home over the internet and then download more payload 
you know, do something else from that standpoint. So there is an interaction process and this payload process that has to occur in order for that to, to happen. But it doesn't all have to be bundled in the same package. Only the portions for communications and downloading uh, really have to be there from that standpoint. Yeah, because it sounded like from a lot of these articles, they basically were saying that these there were a set of drives or there was a bundle of drives or whatever that was intercepted by the NSA. They actually changed the firmware on the hard drive itself and sent them out to, you know, whatever, whether they're going to an embassy, uh, you know, some sort of secret, uh, you know, base in whatever other country. You know, those are the things we really don't know. And basically, even from Kaspersky's standpoint, they looked at it. They they were looking at it and said it. They were almost saying like it's it's feasible or it's plausible, but they didn't necessarily say that. It, they weren't real clear on saying yes. Yeah. We actually right. found this stuff and this is what it's doing. Right, and that's what I felt too. Uh, but you know, we have some researchers over the last two three years uh, because w- one of the things, and I had mentioned it in some DefCon speeches and some stuff I had done a few years ago, was you know that one of the things that we could have done is possibly take over a platter, write some data to it. We could actually embed something in it that no one would know was there. And then there's been a couple of people, and uh, I've actually worked with one or two of them, and tried to supply some information from my side about the things that are plausible. And there have been like two or three other papers and DEF CON speeches that have been done where uh, 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 Travis Goodspeed is one of them. If you go and look him up, you'll actually see that he's actually done some work kind kind of similar to bad USB, but also did one on hard drives. And it, his premise was, how can I get it to communicate out over the internet? And he did a proof of concept uh, tool that basically made it work. And I don't think he went any further than that, as far as I know. Of course, I don't know <laughs> who he's working with or where he went after this. Uh, he was recruited, probably. He did, he did do a, a speech <laughs> on it, and he did talk about it. And there, and he wrote a white paper about it and the whole thing. But it was primarily this whole idea of like you know you could have a key command you could even communicate from the other side where you could actually say if you went to a certain website and i embedded a command in that website that when you downloaded it it could replace content in your cookies and so you could actually have sector by sector being fed out of the drive from that process so so it is plausible but in reality how much work how much data how many things so you know it's one thing to just you know, make a piece of malware and send it out there for everything. It's another thing to say, well, how much data can we get back? What is vital? Who are we attacking? Who are important? You know, what can we get? And I mean, this is a very complex kind of attack. And you've got to have some way not only to to manage the content, but to know the value of which content it is. You just can't attack the whole world and even expect that you can even do anything with that data. So I think there's a little issue of what's real in reality and what can happen if you were really trying hard. And maybe that's, you know, where the story of the NSA comes in because, you know, it would be more tactical attacks. Right. So now with that being said, though, if, if firmware was being manipulated, let's just say, is there a way that you could look at the firmware on a hard drive to see whether it was, there's different code in it or is it is is that not even possible from yeah uh well it is possible but uh, you know then again you're talking about the same as if i if i told you to copy all your dll's out of your windows system folder and tell me which ones are bad well you know unless something is known or you are like a super 
excellent programmer, how are you ever going to know what that is that's missing? And I don't mean, you know, oh, a new DLL exists that has a weird name, which, you know, that's what all of us did when we were looking for malware and we thought it was on the computer. We look for stuff that doesn't belong. Uh, that was one of the first oldest techniques was, you know, look in the task manager and see if anything's running that shouldn't be there. You know, and right. all, none, none of those will work anymore. Uh, the attacks are far more superior than what we can visibly see. Right. Most, most of the time it rootkits itself and you can't even tell what's running. And this is a you know same kind of situation like okay you took over a piece of the firmware and the, you don't know necessarily what the key is that's going to make that thing deploy like what if you're running Linux uh, well if you're running Linux well if you deposit calculator.exe on the computer it's not going to do anything so this is one of those other things where you have to at least maybe know something about who it is or you have to come up with a scenario for every single version of this or you know something like that because what if it's what if it's a hard drive for a Mac then Again, same scenario. None of those things are going to execute. So you may be in a situation where it's only written for Windows or the payload is going to be a specific attack or that the payload then is malware that figures out what it's running on in some way to download more of a payload or something along those lines. But it can't communicate via the hardware at the moment uh, outside of what the firmware is that's been executed on the drive. Okay. So. So it, it's one of those things that's just very – it's a very complex topic, but if you were trying to be very specific, maybe you could get that to happen. But it would be no different than if I told you right now, you know, if you go see Kingsman Secret Service, uh, you know, he's sticking in a, 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 a SIM card into all the phones. I don't know if you've seen that movie. No, I haven't, but it sounds, so, it sounds intriguing. <laughs> I, I like the movie. It's pretty awesome, but uh, – but, you know, in my mind, immediately, you know, what he what happened is it's kind of like the Google of the world. It's like, uh, you know, this guy's really rich, and so what he decided to do is he wanted to take over the world. So what he's going to do is give a free SIM card to everybody. All you have to do is go down to his store, rip out your SIM card, and everybody in the world gets a free SIM card uh, and runs on his free network. And so, oh, okay, that's right? the catch. Okay, yeah, I yeah, got gotcha. you. Kind of. But in but there's this thing that executes from the phone at that point. And unless there's some sort of hook or some sort of way for you to interact with not data, but with executable, you know, how are you going to embed this on this thing? So this is a very similar scenario than if I said, well, look, I'm going to give everybody a free SIM card and now I'm going to execute code on everybody's phone. All right. Over, right. So uh, we know right now, technically, that that might be implausible. But now we actually have, well, what if we just wrote this for iPhones? Everybody would get one free, but we're only going to attack iPhones. Well, now we have a percentage or we're only going to attack Android. And now we have 93 percent of the world because we're attacking Android. But it might have to be by specific version or specific. Sure. Type. So, again, you, you, you might only accomplish this on 10% of your scenario, but it might be enough to actually do what you want it to do. So I think when we're looking at this particular item, this would be more targeted. Uh, I think it would be something more like, you know, what if China wanted to interfere with our ability to make chicken or something like that? Uh, right. Okay. So, and that's, and that's kind of what I thought too. I was like, you know, I, my whole scenario with when it comes down to this stuff, whether it be hardware or software related is that, I just believe that if, as long as I'm on the internet, I really don't have a whole lot of privacy. I, I do the best I can, but the reality is if somebody really wanted in bad enough, they could figure out a way. So I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm just, if, if someone really wanted, like, let's just say, let's say you became a target of the NSA, uh, 
there would be or whoever a bad group because I think NSA is just the word everybody uses today. Now it's become you know the the bad guy for everything. Uh, but yeah. the, the issue becomes if I if I followed you around, I could figure out enough stuff to know. Well, what could I replace? What could I give you? What would I like? I could embed something in something else. It's a tracking device, and you might even accept it for free. I uh, you know. I'm sure that there's a number of those kind of scenarios where if they really wanted to attack you personally, that's a that's a very local targeted attack where you know a lot of information about a particular person or something as a point as as separate from a global attack, which would be we're going to have this malware for everybody's hard drive. <laughs> um, and, and and those are two completely different scenarios. So right. I could see where okay, so you know outside of the U.S. that maybe there would be a call for the NSA in Saudi Arabia to have hard drives that all have malware on it and can do this. And so maybe they're targeting you know in that certain area they only bought you know Toshiba's and they didn't buy you know Seagate's. Maybe that would be a good attack. Now this software did uh, it did address that. It did like in the code you actually can see or what. You know, they physically at least released uh, for the viewing public. Uh, you know, it did look and say, "Oh, what if this one identified itself as a Toshiba, or this one identified itself as a Seagate?" And it was multiple types and multiple families of drives. Gotcha. So, okay, so and that's I guess that's what looking at the the papers that they did and the the uh, different trees and stuff that they had for, you know, looking at. I, I still couldn't figure out for the life of me what in the world that they were looking at that they said. You know, hey, we found, or, or, or were were they just finding something well, that was basically possible, or were they actually finding something that was was well, not so looking right? If you are Seagate, why would you have any content in your firmware that identified Toshiba hard drives? Ah, I gotcha. So I, I think it was something that might not have been immediately uh, obvious, but maybe somebody was crawling through something or looking at something on. You know, or maybe there was a virus, or somebody ended up getting something, and now they're examining everything. And so they used the PC three thousand, downloaded the firmware, and then they were reviewing some files. And then there's one instance where there's actually a group of code that identified multiple families of drives. So why would there ever be in the firmware from Seagate a drive that would identify those items? Is that's that's what I think probably occurred. That's probably something that was very obvious, but maybe they don't know everything about what it does. Right, because you know, just from my own thought process, you know, a lot of times I'll use uh, you know C tools or something like that for you know uh, Seagate drives and just to kind of look at them and, and do a, you know a quick test on them or whatever. But a lot of times, you know, I mean, I can I can use C tools for Toshiba's. Uh, I can use you know for a lot of the different drives out there, you can use C tools. Not I don't know. Well, that you it can, works. but the, so those are standard commands that it's communicating gotcha. with for those kind of things. Now, uh, so some of the items like C tools. Uh, I don't even know because I've seen several times that Seagate has actually bought somebody else's tool and used it. So <laughs> I don't even know for sure that that's always only their own commands, that they're using global universal commands just to determine if the drive is rewritable, writable, things like that. So they can say, well, you're under warranty. Here's Because I've had it pop up before and gives you a little red box. Right. And it says, here's your generic error, blah, 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 blah. And it has a number. And if you call and you talk to them, I've done this. You call and you talk to support and you and you tell them what this is and you say, what does this one mean? They'll tell you, even though they're looking in, in on the line on the computer and they're looking at what supposedly their guide for what these problems are, he says, I do not know. It's a generic error. And what it means is you're under warranty. Send your drive in. 
<laughs> That's the answer I've gotten from them on the phone. So, so again, I don't know that they know or that all they're doing is they're running an application that somebody wrote that then allowed them to say, we're going to talk to these 10 sectors. We can't talk to these sectors, so therefore we're going to default to I can't run. And then you can use it on any drive. Uh, but you won't be writing custom things. Like you won't have one that says, oh, I'm a firmware update. Here's my update, and I'm going to write this to the drive. If you were a C, if you're using C, let's say C tools did it, but it doesn't do that. Let's just say it did. Uh, then it's not going to use the same command for Toshiba drive. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. so you shouldn't have, oh, my Seagate firmware made its way into a storage place on a Toshiba drive. That doesn't sound plausible. Or, you know, and I'll, I also wonder too, is there, so when it comes to, to coding, I mean, are all these companies, because so many of, so many of them have merged together over the, the past few years, are these companies actually rewriting brand new firmware or are they using firmware that, I don't know, could be five years old or something like that. And they're not actually, they're just kind of copying and pasting because a lot of times when it comes to code. A lot of people have done that over the years. Well, they just they throw a bunch of stuff in there. They kind of take out what they don't need, but they leave a bunch of garbage in there. I um, don't know because if they're lazy or I, I don't know why, but they, you know. Well, yeah, I, I believe you're accurate in your statements there from a standpoint of um, now uh, here as an example of this exact same thing that happened. Uh, so remember this uh, problem with Seagate hard drives in 2008 that they released in the F3 series of yes, their drives? yes has this firmware bug and things, you know, stop working. Like they'll run fine and then all of a sudden something gets corrupt and then when yep. you turn it off, turn it back on, it doesn't work anymore. And it, it's strictly a firmware problem and a table gets corrupt and there's an update that you have to do to, to get around this problem. And if you do it while the drive's live, then you're fine. If you don't, then you've got to actually go through shorting the board and doing a couple of things to make it work. Well, so what happened was uh, they had some old code. It had been around for a long time. And so, you know, pretty much throughout – uh, this generation of drives, maybe from 2000, maybe to 2008, 2007, uh, the code was basically all based on the same thing. And so it may have been, and I don't know enough to tell you if it was 16-bit code or whatever it was, but at some point in time, they decided that there's, in order to do some of these advanced features, to do 4K sectors, to do native command queuing, we need more more robust uh, operating system on our drive. And so, uh, so at that point in time, they pulled code from their SCSI line. They had a SCSI line of drives that uh, ha already had all these features. Like a lot of the stuff we have in IDE is stolen from, and SATA is stolen from uh, SCSI anyway. SCSI's basically been doing it right since the 70s. And we just kind of eventually either we can make it affordable, we take a piece of code from them, or we take some something they did, like LBA blocks. LBA blocks uh, and the way that we store data. For the first three generations of drives that we had that were IDE, we didn't do it. We did not do LBA blocks. Uh, we started with CHS, and then we evolved, and we did another type of storage from there. Well, eventually we got around and we said, okay, LBA 28-bit mode is how we're going to do logical block addressing from zero to whatever the end of the drive is. We, we got that technology from SCSI drives. And so at this point, Seagate had taken a branch of whatever they thought they needed from the SCSI tree, and they built a new set of code for these SATA hard drives off of that. Well, there was a bug that had been fixed later on in the SCSI tree for the same exact problem that they actually had in these 2008 drives. And somebody either forgot or didn't go look at the tree or figure out what <laughs> bugs they fixed. And so that's why this bug came back. It basically was something we had in SCSI drives that they 
forgot because they cut and pasted out this portion of the tree. They didn't go look at the rest of the tree and say, what bugs did we fix? Maybe we need to apply these here. And so that that's where this bug crops up. And so now we're on a, a generation of drives where, yes, it, it's it's kind of like Windows, like it grows in complexity and you go through generations of it and then changes of people and changes of programmers uh, and, you know, eventually you just keep going on. Whereas like, as I mentioned earlier, camera manufacturers, you know, for a decade, they may not have changed any code. They may have been using the same basic premise they had for how do I write to my SD card? Here it is. I took a picture and now it slams it down on the card. And so those guys might have wandered off or maybe they only contracted them to write the driver that they needed for the camera for that time. And then 10 years later, no one remembers what that was. Uh, so you have stagnant code and then you have things that are just continually evolving, but may change people, may change complexity, may change uh, everything about it. And I think that's where we are with drives is we've got a certain amount of this that has grown. Now we have three, we only have three distributors still left, uh, Seagate, Toshiba and Western Digital. And so those three guys are, uh, they've bought everybody else up. Everybody else is gone. Hitachi got consumed by, by Western Digital. And so I don't know. I think they bought them for intellectual property, for some of the advanced features that they actually had. And they're using some of those advanced features. But who survives in the long run? Is the current Western Digital line going to be what they cease to make and they continue on with Western with the, with the stuff from uh, Hitachi? And now labeled as Western Digital because they're doing both. They're, right now they're distributing two different sets of drives, basically ones that are made by Western Digital that were the older method before the Hitachi acquire, and then Hitachi, uh, in a Western Digital box. So at some point in time, they usually can't maintain both of those in two separate departments and two separate groups of people. My guess is they will kill one of them and take the technology that they have with them. Gotcha. Yeah, I've I've actually been buying the HDST uh, drives lately for laptops. Um, you know, just off your recommendation that those are probably as far as drives go. Even though you pretty much have said they're all crap. Um, <laughs> that, yeah, right. It's, just, <laughs> it's it's my it's my cream of the crap, I guess. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. As long as you protect yourself, back up, back up, back up. I don't like like I said again. I've said this a hundred times. I don't care if I went out of business doing data recovery because we now have better, more reliable equipment. If I could feel like we had better, more reliable equipment and that things didn't die and it shut me down as a data recovery company, I am okay with that. Let's advance on, out with the old, in with the new. I'll move on to some new project. Right. Uh, that makes sense. So now I have to ask this. So since this article has come out, you know, however, however long ago it was, have you looked at any firmware on the drives that you're doing and, and seen anything that was, you know, just I, kind of made I, you think? I have not specifically pulled to look for this particular thing. I don't think we have uh, a like we get so many drives that come through. There's a portion of it to just be a complete waste of time because I expect that none of the problems that I'm seeing are because of this. I you know I'm running a business to make money to try to do this. So unless somebody said you know these five models of Western Digital drives had this on it, then I would go look at those five. Like okay. when they're finally more specific and I actually know that there's some plausible scenario and I want to go see it, then I'd go through that round and look at it. But I, I don't think we're talking about, you know, uh, it would just be a crapshoot at this point. Just, you know, I pull firmware and stuff all the time, but I'm not looking for this type of stuff. So in, in other words, this is probably not something that's happening. I mean, 
it seems to me it's it doesn't seem like this would happen maybe on the factory floor, but you know, and that, and that goes back to the other question was, you know, did they intercept these and then you know basically change the firmware, you know, in route? You know, I, I nobody knows, and that's where we're kind of like. Oh. And I love the headlines, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, to a certain extent, obviously, <laughs> you know, if, if you have some control of it, then you can put something on there physically. But if you don't have control of it, then all you have to do is somehow inject it into the process. So if I was, you know, the NSA, I would really try to find somebody that maybe worked at like Lenovo and I would <laughs> pay them a tremendous amount of money to make sure that this thing got embedded into their distribution method. I, I don't know if that was really ultimately the point that would be more feasible than drawing attention to yourself by saying, Hey, manufacturers, if you want to send this to our country, you must let us touch it. Like that, that's, that just doesn't sound like something that's really, Oh, we're, you know, we're going to touch 150,000 computers or Apple cell phones before they're released. You know, that's that particular scenario is not as obvious as maybe, Oh, the prime minister of Britain, you know, somebody bought one and now we're going to go put that on their computer before they receive it. I, you know, right, but. right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I believe what you're saying is that most of them, it would have to be a targeted effort and have to be a first specific situation, which to be honest, would have been true even before this article came out anyway. So this is not, it's like, this is not really new, right? It's just that well, we're they're like, They're make, trying to make people, well, they're using, you know, these headlines to try to make people more aware, I hope. Well, but none, of, none of this is new. And what people didn't realize is that all the stuff that we've had for all these years didn't work. Uh, you know, we if you go back and you look at what the definition of like key escrow is, you know, basically the government, if you're going to export or import certain things, that there are certain features that you must give them access to or give them the ability to have access to. And this is one of those big fights, even with PGP like years and years ago, uh, was, you know, the import export, giving them a backdoor, giving them some way to have access to this. And that's why, you know, in theory, they're all pissed off that Apple iPhones are going to lock us out and, you know, they're not going to have act like, I don't still know if that's actually true or if it's, you know, again, even plausible from that scenario that they wouldn't have a backdoor or have access, but, you know, obviously Apple is trying to do it because everybody would say, well, we don't want to buy an insecure phone. Uh, you know, they can't have your cake and eat it both ways either because you're going to actually say at one time the government bought BlackBerry phones because they were the hardest to crack. They are the hardest to break into. But, of course, all of their content was being sent to Canada. And so, you know, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing from this particular uh <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I mean, why be you know, U.S. government, but your servers are in Canada? Anyway, uh, so so they bought BlackBerry phones, but then iPhone comes along and they say, well, we're not going to buy iPhones because they're not secure. Well, now we made them so secure you can't even have access to them when you buy them now. Right. <laughs> so and, yeah, now they're mad because they can't get it yet. Right. I mean, you can't access. you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, well, we know about this back door, so we're now we're not going to buy your content because we know about it, but we made you put it there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my! Well, I'll tell you. Yeah, this is a yeah. I I think we've come up with a, a lot of good content and uh, and hopefully have made people at least think a little bit and and hopefully taught them some good things. But uh, so, if you would, what types of things uh, do you have going on nowadays, and uh, where can people reach you at? Well, uh, so everybody should know by now. Myharddrivedie.com. That's the website, and uh, I have 
all the presentation and all the material up there. I have the stuff about classes and upcoming classes, and I have my distance learning kit, uh, which is continually evolving. I just updated it uh, just a month ago from a January uh, 2015 um, image that I had actually made. I did uh, did all new video, did all new stuff, and so uh, so that's being distributed now in the new distance learning kit. And uh, coming up, I'll have a class in Australia next month. So anybody that's in Australia that wants to attend. Uh, go through any of this process and learn how to disassemble and reassemble drives and learn how to use uh, deep sparring and Atola correctly so that you can actually do some recovery and do things on your own. You know, please sign up. Uh, it's very critical. I try to get higher numbers in Australia because it's so expensive for me to go there and teach the class. But uh, usually the government in Australia likes me to come and, and teach some of those guys as well. Uh, and then you know, carrying on from there, the biggest thing will be like uh, I have some upcoming classes in August in D.C. I'm going to DEF CON and then I will have a I'm actually going to put together like a two hour lab with uh, Deep Spars and Atolas for a conference that's coming up uh, towards November. So in our next podcast next month or the you know, month after, I'll give you some more details on that. So if people are going to attend this other conference they can actually have like a two-hour lab that will be included in the in that conference uh, for them to see a deep spar and see see data recovery and you know kind of do at least the hands-on part of the process, not the disassembly and the reassembly of the drives themselves, but how the recovery portion. And and, and this has always been a big thing. People think they know how to image a hard drive, and they're all wrong. So. Uh, <laughs> And that's the first thing I have to do with every forensics guy usually is break him and then make him again because everything he's been taught or everything he thinks is happening and every way that they've actually imaged data for all of these decades, technically there's a huge amount that they're missing and that they're wrong about and they are blind. They just have no clue that they're blind. Right. And I've had a huge problem trying to display that. I actually, last last January I did a uh, – I did a speech at ShmooCon, and you can find it online. Uh, it is uh, the evidence you don't have it. And it was all about forensics imagers compared to data recovery imagers. And the one big thing is that you'll notice that all the forensics imagers leave you with no visual, no information, no way to understand what they're actually doing or what's going on, where you can actually see every sector, examine every sector on the data recovery side. And so that's one of the biggest things, and that's what this conference is going to be about, is trying to – spend two hours in a lab showing forensics people, you know, as part of this, this event that, you know, what they're missing. Oh, very cool. That, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I'm always one of those people that I will, I always want to learn and I always want to make things better. And, um, I just don't understand. I, I think it's not just in the forensics community, but it's in the tech community in general is that we're all hard headed and we don't want to, make ourselves better for some reason. I don't know. But anyways, so I, I appreciate what you're doing out there and that you are actually getting people on the right track to, you know, for data recovery and, and forensics because, you know, hard drives aren't going away anytime soon. <laughs> no, that's true. They're not. Uh, even solid state drives again, back up, back up, back up. Exactly. No matter what you're using. No, don't trust it. I'm telling you. Uh, especially your new MacBook Pro with your C connector on it or whatever that they're going to do with the ridiculous list of connections and iphone iWatches. oh uh, yeah yeah yep. well it, it'll be nice at least you won't have to uh, flip your usb cord you know one way or the other it doesn't matter 
I, I, I think that this particular <laughs> item might be the thing that kills anybody from buying it because you should always at least have a charging port if you want to make a dongle for all the other stuff. Although I'm, I'm, I'm so appalled by this theory that you've got to spend $70 on dongles just to do your normal thing. Right. Because the one thing you have to have, no matter what, is whatever the USB memory stick has, you need to have that. Right. In order to communicate with multiple machines or multiple things because MacBook Airs are traditionally difficult to get things on or off of other than using internet connection. So I, I just think that that's, that that's kind of – and I know people are thinking, oh, yes, as a future, let's go to see this one reversible thing. But you should always have a power plug that's different. And on top of that, they're getting rid of the mag connector for the MacBook Air, which was pretty critical. Like if you're carrying it around everywhere, mine comes unplugged all the time. And because somebody kicks a wire or walks by it or does something else. And again, I can't imagine having to plug in the dongle to plug in uh, the charger and plug in my flash memory stick. It just, I, I think it's a huge weakness. Well, yeah. And, and those mag chargers, you know, fortunately were always because they would just come out and they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't pull on the, uh, the power jack or anything like that. Like, you know, you, you do that same thing on a regular laptop. And the next thing you know, you know, somebody's coming to me and, you know, I'm charging them 125 bucks to replace the power adapter. So. Yep, right. <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of the mag connectors, and I think it's a huge loss not to have it. And and I just don't see how, you know, even if you're making it thinner, that you know, there's a spot where that just becomes not useful anymore. Yeah, no, I, I agree. mean, like, kind of like <laughs> SD cards, you know, when we're now at the, you know, nano, micro SD cards and you can't even see them anymore. Right. You got to pick them up with a pair of tweezers because you can't even <laughs> stick it in your device anymore. I mean, like, there, there's a spot where, you know, once it's a pinhead, yeah, it's smaller, but it no longer is something I can actually keep track of or use. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again, Scott, for taking the time to come out on the show. I know you've been busy lately, and we really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. No problem. If you guys have any questions, you can email us at mhdd at podnuts.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, call 1-888-697-0162. If you guys could do us a favor and you're listening to this show, please leave us a rating and review over on iTunes. That'll let more people know about this show and so more people can get this information. We, You guys can also help support the Podnets Network. The next time you're shopping at Amazon, go to podnuts.com slash Amazon. And I also want to thank our sponsor of today's show, uh, Reclaim Me Pro. We appreciate that. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.